whenever you go into the back country solo, it is dangerous and there is a risk. That's out of the discussion. And what I did, I knew is a risk. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Uh, Before we get into today's episode, I did want to tell you we have relaunched our Patreon page, which is uh, where you can go and support the show monthly if you've never heard of Patreon. Uh, Link is in the show notes, by the way. Um, But you can literally, you know, give a dollar a month, five dollars a month, 20 bucks a month. And we have a ton of different tiers now, like different levels that you can support us. uh, And different benefits come with each level. And I just will say this, um, one of the levels includes ad-free episodes. So um, if you're interested in that, you're interested in just hearing the episodes, no extra stuff, no ads, you can support us monthly and have access to stuff like that. Um, But, you know, you can give everything from a dollar a month to 20. Um, and, and all of it helps, you know, we've got bills to pay. So it, all the people on there that are being being added there, thank you so much for what you do. And so I, I did want to shout out the most recent patrons um, just for their support. We really appreciate it. Peter F., Simon L., and then Chase P. Those are our three most recent patrons. And uh, thank you all so much uh, for supporting the show. It goes a long way. And if you'd like to, patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast uh, or there's a link in our show notes as well um, but getting into today's episode I did want to talk about um, w- what we're talking about so Thomas Reese is a friend of mine uh, one of our athletes over at uh, athletic brewing and he recently attempted an, an FKT which is a fastest known time doing you know a route or a mountain faster than anyone's ever done it and he expected you know okay it's going to be a few hours or whatnot uh, but it ended up being, or actually it was going to be a pretty long day, um, but it was going to be a, a, a day. Um, but it ended up being much longer than that, about double that. Um, just a couple things went wrong that you obviously don't anticipate. Um, but thankfully he was prepared. Um, but the whole premise of what we're talking about is just how quickly things can go wrong. I was just canoeing literally yesterday with a friend, and we were on this river that I thought, Okay, this is a little more powerful than I thought it was going to be, and the, the 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 slightest mishap or you know maneuver in the wrong direction um, could end up you know us flipped and you know our kids were with us, so there was that level of danger. We were very keen on like nothing going wrong, um, but it's crazy in the real world just how quickly things can happen. Um, there is no, it's not like a movie where there's buildup and there's music and it's, you know, obvious something's going to happen or, um, you know, you have all those cues in the real world. It just happens and you're left fumbling and figuring out what to do. And it might not be all that big of a deal. It might not seem dangerous. Uh, something I always appreciated when I worked in the national parks was they used to have posters with, uh, with kids, next to rivers and then they'd photoshop right next to it a poster of a kid next to a cliff and they say honestly it's the same level of danger you know that kid falls in a a river that's moving pretty quick it's there's not a lot of chance they're going to get out because there's so many rocks there's so many things to hit and it's it's you know how quickly can you get down river and catch someone if they're being tumbled along and so anyway i don't mean to get too gruesome but uh, it's crazy in the backcountry just how dangerous it can be. And unfortunately, this summer, there there were a lot of very experienced people that went and did solo trips just like Thomas has done um, that did not come back for whatever reason. You can look it up. It was a really bizarre thing, that's phenomenon that seemed to happen this year. Um, and, I, and I think it's just people that were maybe overconfident and just... You know, I, I don't really know, but we hear Thomas's story. We're thankful that he, he made it back fine. And it might not sound that dramatic to you when you hear his story, but, you know, a, a really cold night can lead to hypothermia, which can lead to death. And it's not that extreme. It just, it just you know, a chain reaction that happens and you can't really reverse it once it starts. But anyway, all this to say, when you're going out there, be prepared, understand, you know, what you're doing, the dangers of what you're doing. So... All right, enjoy this episode, and if you'd like, support us on Patreon, and thanks for everyone who has signed up recently. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today, we're talking to 
to a friend of mine now and an athletic brewing athlete and uh, someone who's doing some pretty cool stuff. Thomas Reese, welcome to the show. Hi, Dad. Nice. Um, I'm um, thankful that you have me here and get to share my story. Absolutely. Now, now Thomas, I, I, I know that uh, you can kind of be doing adventures all over the place, um, but where are you coming from today and where's home? Um, I've been living in, well, my home is kind of split. I'm originally from Germany and I moved here at uh, age 29. I'm now 53 um, and reside now in California, beautiful San Luis Obispo, right uh, in between Los Angeles and San Francisco. What what made you go from Germany to there? Um, it's very simple. I met uh, the love of my life, which became my wife, and she was from San Luis Obispo. And so the options were either we both move to Germany or live in Germany, or we both live here, and we picked um, San Luis Obispo. So, and this was like um, almost twenty five years ago. Not a bad place to be. I mean, Germany's fantastic too. So I'm sure I'm sure that was a tough choice, but. At least one of you gets to be, you know, home and have that kind of family support, you know. So uh, w- when did you get in running? Have you always, was it early, early on back when you were a kid or was it later, later in life? Yeah, I had a couple of experiences with running kind of in, in you know, what would be compared to middle school here um, that I enjoyed and it was kind of fun, but then didn't really turn into a youth run hour or anything. And then um, at age 20, a friend of mine convinced me to run a marathon, which I always admired marathon running in the Olympics and so forth. And so I trained for three months. I ran a marathon and ran very well to brag a little bit. I broke three hours, which is pretty good for your first marathon bad, with, yeah. with, with like three months of so-so training. And sure enough, the local running club recruited me essentially right at the finish line. And that was the start of my running career. And I've been a runner ever since then. And, um, you know, started out with, uh, after that marathon, they, they turned me into a track runner. I ran like between 800 and 5,000 meters on the track, mostly then 10 K roads, half marathon. Um, I actually only ran one other marathon. Um, and then I took a little break for a few years at my, in my early thirties and then started ultra running at about age uh, 36. Oh, man. So you took a break from running altogether in your early 30s? Yeah, it was um, actually interesting enough. Uh, we are right at that anniversary. So uh, my dad passed away at the young age of 58 um, due to cancer. And so I had to go for his funeral. It was kind of like, you know, obviously last minute trip. I had planned to stay there with my wife for three days. And the day after his funeral was actually 9-11. So we got stuck in Germany for like almost four weeks because remember there was like no flights or anything. Right. Holy cow. And, um, and so during that time, you know, there was obviously, I don't want to say I was depressed, but there was probably some sort of depression happening because, you know, I was sad about my dad passing away and then seeing all the 9-11 stuff on the TV and my, my wife was freaked out because, you know, she's in a foreign country and she didn't understand. She was like constantly, what is going on? What is going on? And so it was a, a rough time. And I just through that, I kind of lost my, my fire and my motivation for running. Um, and so I just, uh, I got into this like stubborn phase where I was like, Oh, I'll just do it anyway, just for my dad and try even harder. And you know, those things usually don't work. And so my running just got worse every day. And um, so I, after a couple of months of struggling, I said, you know what, I'll just need a break. Um, and so I took a break for a few years. I mean, I would always go for a run, but I wasn't really training. You know, I would like, yeah. friend would say, hey, when I go for a run on Saturday, I'm like, sure, I'll go for like a half hour run or something, you know. And then I wanted to get back into running and do something where I didn't care about the time or anything, where I only cared about finishing. And so I signed up for this Tahoe triple marathon. So it's like three days, three marathons around Lake Tahoe. And (laughs) my goal was essentially to just finish it and say like, wow, I ran three marathons in three days at altitude on a hilly course when before this, 
I've only ran two marathons in my whole running career. And my wife thought I'm crazy. Um, I thought, what the heck, why not, you know? And so what happened, I took the lead at mile one of that race, ended up winning the race, breaking the course record, and then, needless to say, was hooked again on competing, just that now instead of 5,000 on the track, it was like ultra races. And that's how I got my start in ultra running. So, Course record and winning winning the event got got you back in it. You're like, you know what? I I can do this. Yeah, no, it's 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 um, you know, sometimes picking something different, sort of related but different. You know, I think can help to get that fire again. You know, absolutely. Uh, w- once you set the course record for that event, um, how were you feeling? What was going through your mind? Like, what did you want to do then? What was what was like? What were you thinking, I guess? Well, then I started really looking into the whole sports of ultra running because when I did that Tahoe triple marathon, which technically is actually not even a ultra marathon because ultra marathon is considered anything longer than a marathon. And in this race, I did not run anything longer than a marathon, right? Because it was three marathons in three days. So... Um, I looked into ultra marathons and um, decided to run a 50k and again had a great race, won the race and then um, then I got really curious and started looking into stuff and how to like make it onto like the national team in the 100k on the road and so I started experimenting with that for a little while, started experimenting with some trail races and um eventually made the German national team twice at the first two um, trail ultra trail world championships. And um, yeah, and have been like in that sport ever since. But interesting enough, since I turned 50, I discovered my passion for shorter running again and um, working a lot on my speed. And I'm actually thinking about uh, maybe running a couple of like maybe world championships or something for age groupers in my age group, because I can still break five minutes in the mile, which if you're getting over 50 is is pretty quick, you know? And so I have a little bit of that struggle going on right now because I love, as you know, I love FKTs. I love long hundred K 50 mile, hundred mile trail races, but I also still like running fast in like a mile on the track. So I'm constantly going back and forth, trying to pick what I want to do. It's kind of a little bit of a, a struggle sometimes, like almost like a, too much of a good thing, you know? <laughs> Those are two de- very different uh, ways of doing things, you know, quick runs on the track versus multi-day FKTs. It's uh... a... <laughs> They're the opposite ends of the spectrum. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'd love to hear, you know, you're right there in San Luis Obispo. There's so many things you do have access to. W- when did you start doing FKTs or what was maybe your first? You know what? I actually haven't done that many FKTs. I was always, uh, um, I don't know, kind of scared of it or something. I always wanted to have that safety net of a organized race, you know, Um so I, I was, I mean, I've always been following the FKT scene because um, um, the first, my first sponsored contract and team I was on was actually managed by Buzz Burrell, which um, some of you guys and you may know, he's one of the original founders of FKT, of that whole movement and the website and everything. And um, so he was the first guy that picked me up on a team um, for uh, on a sponsored team when I got into ultra running. And so I've been exposed to it for many, many years, but I never did one. I don't know why really. I think I was a little bit too scared. And then last year during COVID, obviously there was a big boom with FKTs because there was no races, right? And so I started doing some research on FKTs in California that I'm familiar with. And I found a couple that really intrigued me because they are in my favorite area in California, which is um, the Eastern Sierra out by 
Lone Pine, Bishop, Mount Whitney area. And they both started on the Onion Valley trailhead, which one of my first, I've done a lot of backpacking with my kids. Um, and my son, when he was 11, my younger son, Luke, our first three-day overnight backpacking trip with summiting Mount Whitney started from there. It started from Onion Valley, and we summited Mount Whitney and went out the Whitney portal. And so I found an FKT that was exactly that route and got a little bit attached to it emotionally. And the good thing was the time was relatively soft because, you know, if you go into the Eastern Sierra or the FKTs, there's just some Leo Pendelet, Francois Den. Uh, there's, there's just so many great runners. And I'm still relatively quick for my age, but I can't compete with, with those guys, you know? And so, but the two FKTs that I found, the times were relatively soft. And so I said, you know what? That might be kind of a cool thing to tackle those FKTs. And that was last year. So that's um, how I got into that. And you're right. There was a huge, huge increase in just the popularity of KTs because people had been training all this time and training for whatever event they were doing. And then all this competitive buildup in experience and training was, you know, put on hold because of the pandemic and people needed an outlet or something to do. So FKTs were a great way, fastest known times. You could compete against everybody. Um, just don't do it at the same exact time and run with them. Just do it the next day, the day before or after or the week after. You could always compare in some way. So um, it was cool to see that. That is so interesting to hear, too, that you were uh, almost intimidated by them before. Was it just because of, was it lack of experience in the wilderness? It doesn't sound like it because you did a lot of backpacking with your kids. So so what was it? No, I. you know what? I think it was more like kind of, and I had conversations with my coach about it. And uh, it was more like kind of, I mean, FKTs, like whatever, let's say even two or three years ago, wasn't really that big of a thing like last year, right? Um, like you just mentioned. And it was almost like, why waste a great race performance on something that's really kind of, to a lot of people, not that meaningful. You know, like if you go and you have a great race in you and you run and you win a race, let's say you win Western States, that's a really big deal, right? So why would you waste that sort of an effort on an FKT that is maybe not as famous or something, you know? And so I was always like, well, I could do an FKT, but instead I'd rather do a race. But then last year there was no races, you know, and I think that happened to a lot of people. So it wasn't, um, yeah, I was a little nervous about, well, you're going to be out there by yourself because in a race, there's times where you're by yourself, but there's always times where someone's running around you, you know, at, at some point, maybe between hour three and four, you're on your own, but then hour five and six, you're running with someone again. And, you know, and so obviously with an FKT, you are alone, you know, so. I don't think I was scared that something would happen. It was more a little bit like, that's going to be weird being that alone for that long. You know. Then when I did it, I truly enjoyed it. Well, tell us about what it's like. You know, you're, it's not just backpacking where you're out there enjoying it, you know, a decent pace or a decent effort. You're, you're trying to beat the clock in the wilderness. Uh, wh what FKT did you do? How long did it take? And what was the goal? Yeah. So the first one I did was from Onion Valley to Rhodes End in Kings Canyon. And that's about a little over 21 miles. It's very rugged. Um, I forgot the elevation gain, but it's it's all between. It's a net downhill, but it still has like a good elevation gain. The And the FKT was like, I think previously was about four and a half hours. And I estimated I can probably do it in maybe between four and four fifteen, and so I kind of set certain time goals, you know, and then just did it. And it was point to point. Um, friend of mine dropped me off at the start, and then my my family picked me up at the finish. It was it was really cool because there was 
no one to affect your running. There was there was no outside, you know, like in a race, you start and now you're at mile two and you're climbing and this guy passes you and you're like, that guy shouldn't be faster than me. I should go with that guy. So you try to hang with him. But so you're often running other people's races at times instead of your own because you're not disciplined enough or you're like afraid, oh crap, now I'm in like 20th place and I thought I can get top 10 and all those competitive aspects. One an FKT, you don't really, no one's passing you because you're by yourself and you're not seeing someone right in front of you that you want to catch up to. So I think you stay way more within your own means. And then, so I just had like time goals. I hit those and was like, great, I don't need to chase anything. And um, ended up running uh, four hours and nine minutes and breaking that FKT. And I thought, wow, that was really cool doing this by myself, you know, um, really enjoyed it. Such a different experience than being there at a, at a race with hundreds or thousands of people. Um, that, that's so neat. Do, do you think that the FKT hype that was started in 2020 is going to stick around? Do you think people are saying, you know, that are used to races like you were, are like, oh my gosh, there's this whole new way to compete that's fulfills me in different ways besides racing. Do you, do you think it'll stick around for a lot of these high uh, elite athletes? I think so to a certain degree. Now, you know, instead of three or four FKTs in a year, they may do one because now they're racing again, you know, and, and bottom line, especially for professional athletes, you know, who have to do certain things, it has to be either a super high profile FKT, you know, like, I mean, the two FKTs I did, they're kind of meaningless. It's not like I did the John Muir Trail or Pacific Crest Trail or uh, the Backbone Trail or something or Mount Rainier, you know? So, and, and those ones, they've gotten just so fast by now. Yeah. Through last, through last year that even for some of those elite guys, it would be hard to crack them. And so, and, and the thing is, see, especially for like a professional athlete, which, you know, I, I'm not, but I have plenty of friends who do this for a living. Even if you have a not so good day and you get second, you're still getting a lot of publicity. Just think about you getting second at UTMB or Western States or something like that. You still get a lot of publicity for that, which is good for your sponsors, which is good for your income. If you get, there is no second place in an FKT. You know, you either, you either get the FKT and you have the fastest known time or you don't. No one talks about, oh yeah, I have to like the, the, the second known time, right? There's only a fastest known time. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Right. There's there's literally no publicity at all. You're you're lucky to get some if you get the FKT. And so yeah, exactly. that's a that's a really good point that, that it is maybe it does become part of, you know, pro contracts at some point, like, hey, you have to get a high end FKT, but um I don't imagine it's gonna really take over unless it's, you know, specific to outdoor gear or something yeah and and the thing is you know like i mean uh, like i said if they make it part of the contract and they say like yeah you know what we would like you to get a knowledgeable fkt you know like like i know there's some stipulations they say you get performance bonus for top three at like these kind of races and you get a performance bonus for like one of those 10 fkts but because I've seen those kind of contracts from friends. and But those FKTs, they're like John Murtrell. And it's like Francois Den, who just won Hard Rock and, and um, UTMB, has that FKT. Who's going to take that FKT down? You know, <laughs> So you're probably better off if you're a pro athlete to go and run a Western States and get maybe fourth and still get a performance bonus. It's a really good reflection, honestly. 
That's really cool. Well, well, tell me this. Um, you know, your first FKT, that went really well. It was a great experience. Tell us about the most recent experience, the, the, the next FKT that you were trying, the most recent one that, that didn't go to plan. Tell us what the plan was, and then let's get into what happened. Yeah, so I think that was kind of one of the main things I think we wanted to cover today, right? So so last year, I found those two FKTs, both starting in Onion Valley, going up Kearsetch Pass. So the one I did last year goes over and then pretty much goes straight going west over the Sierra. And then the other one that I found <clears throat> is um, 44 miles, and it essentially hits the John Muir Trail when you come down Kearsatch Pass. And then you're doing the balance of the John Muir Trail to Mount Whitney Portal. And so I wanted to do those two last year. Um, obviously, the second one was very, very meaningful since that was my, you know, my son's first backpacking backcountry trip with me in his first summit of Whitney. So I had that emotional attachment, really wanted to do it. Um, and so last year, my permit got canceled the week before. I, I was very well prepared for it since there was no races last year. I really focused more on the training for that FKT. And... But uh, like I said, my permit got canceled a week before it because they had a lot of wildfires in that general area, and so the trails were closed. Um, so then I said, okay, maybe I do it next year. So got a new permit this year, and then um, decided to do it, and uh, it was on August 12th. And um, the record is uh, 15, a little over 15 hours. And I figured... I can probably do it in about 12 hours. Worst case, it's going to be 13 or 14 hours, but I should get that record because the record is pretty soft. I personally still think that the record is soft and that I can get it and that I can go in 12 hours. But I had some unforeseen problems. And um, the, the, the scary thing is, um, so let, let me walk you through. through. Yeah. Yeah, walk us through it. I, I want to know like what went wrong or what happened that where it started to go south. So I started out and I felt okay. I didn't feel like super great, but I didn't feel bad. You know, first climb right on time. On the part between mile eight and thirteen, I was a little slower than I thought I would be, but still way ahead of still on on track for like way below 15 hours still like two or three hours ahead of that record you know um got over the highest pass which is forrester pass at 13 actually second highest on this route 13.2 and um felt okay you know and i but i figured i'm gonna feel better when i come down because it's the altitude we're pretty high up you know as you descend you start feeling better there's a long, very runnable section. I kind of feel better there, you know, and that all went pretty good. Uh, started to feel the altitude a little bit, like, you know, I am from sea level, and so I didn't do much acclimatization, which obviously is not the smartest thing, but for like a 12-hour effort, I, you know, you're in and out so quickly that you can probably deal with it. And um, so that's some of the usual stuff where I just don't feel like eating, but nothing really unusual. Got to about mile 30, still fairly good on time, and had to climb up to Mount Whitney on the on the back side, on the west side of Mount Whitney, and then go over um, the pass down to the Whitney portal. <clears throat> and on that climb, I started to get really, really bad lower back pain. And I was like, well, you know, I've been out here for whatever, nine hours, 10 hours at that point, high power hiking a lot on the climbs. Um, I had uh, just a regular hydration pack, so I didn't have a big backpack or anything, but still that kind of factors in, you know. It's like, well, it's probably going to get better as soon as I'm on top and I go downhill. And it got worse and worse and worse. And maybe half a mile before the top where you're cresting over to go downhill, I started leaning 
to my side. And I've seen that with some ultra runners at the end of 100 mile races where they use their, lose their stabilization and they lean to the side. And, but I, I've seen it, but I didn't know much about it. And within a mile, it got so bad that I was walking like a drunk person. You know when you see those, those funny videos where the police make someone walk on a straight line and they walk two steps straight and then one step left and one step backwards because they're so drunk? I started walking like that. And, and I was like, wow, this is really weird. I, I, I literally walked two steps forwards, one step sideways, one backwards. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. And started also at the same time getting a little bit nervous because the Whitney Trail where I was there coming down is for the top part very where the 99 switchbacks are and everything. It's very treacherous. And there's a lot of steep, rocky transitions and stuff. And I had to really slow down and like, you know, use my hands and my poles and go really slow. And, and I fell a couple of times where I was just losing my balance going backwards. And I got, I have to admit, I got a little bit scared about like, man, I'm, I'm in trouble here. You know, um, I was somewhat prepared. I mean, I had like my in reach satellite device. So I started texting um, my family who was waiting at the portal for me. And I said, you know, I'm doing fine. I'm just moving slow. So I gonna be an hour late. And then texted, oh, I'm moving even slower. I'm going to be two hours late. But I was still sort of, I was still on, on pace to break that 15 hour course record, FKT, right? And, but then I just started getting slower and slower and slower. And I got, at one point I was like, this is very dangerous. I could right now just lose my balance and fall and really, really injure myself. And by now it had gotten so late that it was maybe about half an hour from getting dark. And I still had about five miles to go. And I was like, Wow. There's no way I can walk the way I'm walking in the dark. I mean, it's it's way dangerous in daylight. So I made the call to uh, send a message to my inReach, to my family, and um, told them, hey, I'm good. I'm not hurt, really. I just can't move any longer. It's getting too dangerous with this condition. And I'll just kind of PV on the side of the trail. And that's what I ended up doing. Got you know, got my my emergency PV out and um, pretty much just like cuddled up on the side of the trail and slept until four. Like by now it was like nine nine thirty, probably ten o'clock until I was all settled down and then off and on slept for a few hours and I got up at three thirty and my back was perfectly fine perfectly recovered. I could walk straight and I just hiked it out for the last five miles. Missing the FKT, but happy that you were okay. Yeah. By now it was like, um, I, I think I actually finished in, uh, 26 hours or something or 25 and a half hours, like really start to finish. But at this point I just was like more concerned about safety or anything, you know, what when you decided to sleep on the side of the trail and pull out your emergency bivy did did it become real to you or was that something you were uh processing okay or was it like this is crazy or it's like nope this might have happened and I'm 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 ready for it You know what it was a little bit crazy because getting into this uh I want to say maybe that's if you are a good runner and you've done those things before you know i've done like i've done plenty of backpacking multi-day backpacking i've done some mountaineering trips um i've ran races up to 100 miles in distance where it gets rough and you're throwing up and things are really rough and and 
I thought there's two options. I'll either going to make it fine. Don't worry. If I, if like I run out of energy, worst case, I'll just walk out. No big deal. Worst case, the last eight miles, they're all downhill. Worst case, I'll just walk down to the portal and I'll finish at 10 o'clock in the dark or at 11 o'clock in the dark. No big deal. Or the other thought was, yes, something could happen. I could trip and fall and, and, and break my leg and I need to get like search and rescue involved and get put out on a horse or a helicopter or whatever, like a true accident. I did not consider something like this happening because my wife said, should we send search and rescue? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm fine. I just, I just can't walk anymore. You know, I didn't plan. For <laughs> that doesn't sound uh, <laughs> very encouraging to your wife. Do we need to send you know, search and rescue? No, no, you don't. But I can't walk anymore. <laughs> because, because it wasn't, you know, it was just this, this, this. And I found out later on, I talked to uh, a couple of physical therapists, massage therapists, and people in the sport have experience with this. And they said, what happened to me, it's a, can happen. It's a common thing. It often happens to older athletes, usually older than me. And um, it's your QL muscle, which stabilizes that you're straight. You have one on the left and one on the right side. And it connects your hip with your spine, with your ribs. And if that muscle goes out on one side, you're leaning to that side. And you're just like leaning over and you just can't go straight anymore. I was, I was literally like completely leaned over to my left side. And they all think probably be, with a lot of the power hiking and everything, the, a lot of the steps that that muscle event for some reason just froze. And so after laying down flat for like a few hours, the muscle like, went back to work and I could get up and was straight and could just walk out, you know? And I never thought something like this would happen. Like I said, I, I, I thought worst case, I'll just walk out slowly. And, but it was just too dangerous to walk with this leaning condition and like walking like a trunk, you know? Um, and so, yeah, when I was laying there in my BV sack, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm glad I brought this BV because it got pretty cold. I mean, I spent the night, it was still about like probably between 10 and 11,000 feet, you know, laying on the ground in the Sierra. It, it, it got pretty chilly, you know, and I was like, glad I brought it. Um, but I was like, wow, this is real, man. This, I never would have thought I would end up like this, you know? Wow. Uh, and that shows you just how fine the line is between being in a really tough situation and how undramatic it can be. It is literally, I'm not feeling well. I got to lay down. If you didn't have that bivy, there's, you know, there's a threat. And that bivy, by the way, is just an emergency blanket. It's just one of those reflective blankets. It's not anything really to keep you that warm. It's literally just an emergency. Things can go south very quickly. Yeah. And, and the, the thing is, I mean, you know, I mean, I guess that's where I have enough experience. I like, I want to say the, the, the 10 year younger version of me, I would have probably just ran with like a water bottle and a handful of goose, you know, but having that experience that I have now, and I mean, in, especially with what happened, I'm very thankful. You know, I brought, right. I brought a first aid kit, which worked great as a pillow, <laughs> you know, and um, I brought an emergency bivy. I brought extra clothing. I actually brought some long pants and an extra jacket with me, you know. And I brought a beanie with me. All the things that I thought I would never need on this run. But I brought them anyway. because, But not for what happened. I brought them for the situation. What if I fall and I break my leg and it takes search and rescue? five hours to come up and by then it's dark and I'm cold and it maybe start getting windy. I brought it for that worst case scenario. I didn't really bring it thinking that something like my text, like I'm okay, but I can't go any further. 
you know, I, I didn't really think about using it for that purpose. Wow. That is that is wild. I, I'm looking at a picture of that, Bibby. It, it doesn't look very comfortable. You were laying on rocks. Um, probably was a rough night, but you woke up, thankfully, safe. What, what do you think you learned th- through this experience? And I do want to say, doing some research on this and some research in the area, there have been four different uh, men who have died this summer on solo adventures like you're doing, very experienced ultra runners, um, backpackers, someone was climbing Mount Whitney, four different, just men have have perished in different ways. What do you think is going on? Like it seems to be almost something in the area with experienced people. And what did that teach you, what you went through? Yeah, I, I, I think part of the problem with the Whitney area is that a lot of people who go there live at sea level like me and have no experience with altitude. And then they go to altitude and they have to really get into trouble. Um, I know I had mild altitude symptoms, but I've been to altitude so many times. I mean, I've been to the Himalayans and I've been to Mount Kilimanjaro and Cotopaxi in Ecuador and, and stuff like that. So I think I have a feel for that. But it can hit you, you know, and and that's something that's out of your control. And I think that happens a lot at Mount Whitney. People come from like Southern California living at sea level and they just drive up there and they're not used to that sort of an exposure. And if they get symptoms, they're not really, they don't really know how to deal with it. Um, So it is, it is. But then whenever you go into the backcountry solo, it is dangerous and there is a risk. That's out of the discussion. And what I did, I knew is a risk. I mean, I could have just could have had the perfect day running really, really well, being on even faster pace than my estimated 12 hours and like tripping on a rock and falling and cracking my head open and be dead. Right. I mean, there's there, there's always that risk, you know, and obviously if that happens during an organized race, chances of survival are a lot better because there's other people running by you. Um, now, the Whitney Trail where I was, there was plenty of other people. Um, I could have asked people for help in a worst case. I saw plenty of people, you know. But in a race, you have like an aid station and they have a car and they can drive you out and all this stuff um, that helps should you get injured to get help faster versus you fall on a trail and you're bleeding heavily or something, it takes a while to get a helicopter there, you know? So obviously the risks are way bigger. So I would just say from this, what, whatever I've learned is to definitely maybe be a little less arrogant about it. Kind of like, ah, yeah, I'm going to be fine. Worst case, I walk it out. Well, what if you can't, you know? Um, And, maybe be even more aware of the risks involved with it, you know, and maybe that changes your mind about, should I do this or not? You know, are you planning to to go back after that FKT and and get it? (laughs) It's funny. Like when I, I told my wife that I'm doing this podcast, she asked me the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, so, and I was like, I don't know. I, I would love to because I know I would love to have this FKT just because I'm so emotionally attached to it because, like I said, that was that first big trip with my son. And now after this failure, I feel even more attached to it. You know, So there's definitely that desire to go back. Um, I started picking up a strength program with a strength coach since then. And maybe in a year I'm so strong that I don't have to have that fear of this weakness in my back kicking in again. Um, I think, yes, I would like to go back and attempt it again. But I think I wouldn't take it as lighthearted as I did. I think I would do it and really prepare more specifically for it. Um, I just sort of 
made it out of my current fitness without specifically training for it because it wasn't a highlight of my season. It was more sort of like, oh, I have those couple of races that I want to do really well, and then I'll squeeze in that FKT based on the fitness I have. So I think should I go back next year, I would definitely make it more of a focus and actually be better prepared than just using my fitness that I have. But um, yeah, I, I don't want to say, no, I'm never going to go back. So Any lesson, I, I, I'm sure, I mean, you shared a lot of uh, great feedback there, but any specific lesson you would, you would share with anyone else that might be entering the backcountry soon or thinking they're, you know, oh, I'm experienced enough. We get, a, we get a lot of listeners like that on the show. Yeah, I mean, like I said, the, the, the 10-year younger version of me, would have probably not brought an emergency BV and extra clothing. I'm, I'm, or a, a first aid kit, you know. So definitely plan for the worst, you know. And even like, like an example when last year when I did that shorter FKT that was like just a little over four hours, I didn't bring anything. I didn't bring a first aid kit. I didn't bring an emergency blanket. I, I just. I figured, well, it's four hours. And worst case, it takes me six hours, right? I had that same sort of approach and it all went well. If I would do that FKT again, because how remote it was going across the Sierra, I would definitely bring, if I would do it again, I would definitely bring an emergency blanket, some warm clothes. What if you slip and fall and in a creek and then you get hypothermia and you're getting cold and you can't walk anymore because you have a broken ankle and it takes six hours for a rescue crew to come or something. You know? um, so definitely plan for that. Even if it's a shorter FKT where you think, well, you know, it's just four hours, which I didn't do last year. So that would be my, my advice to definitely plan for those situations. And then obviously, I mean, I always do that. I did that last year too. Bring like some sort of spot in reach, whatever, you know, like satellite device so you can communicate and call search and rescue in the worst case, you know, just to be safe. You know, and that's really the 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 number one advice I would have. Great advice coming from somebody who's faster than probably anyone else listening, <laughs> um, or at least close to it, and, and very well experienced. Thomas, where can, where can people find out more about you and what you do? And if you don't mind, talking about crazy adventures, I, I'd love for you to share a little bit about the snowman race that, you, uh, that you're a part of. Yeah, so um, the snowman race, it's a five-day stage race in the Himalayan mountains in Bhutan obviously a, a very far remote country. And um, about two years ago, the King of Bhutan started this initiative to bring awareness to climate change, which unfortunately Bhutan is very affected by because melting glaciers and like small mountain towns getting wiped out and stuff like that. Even so, a lot of people don't know this, but Bhutan is the only or one of the only two by now carbon negative countries in the world okay let me repeat that carbon negative wow. and but but they are paying the price for climate change because they're like right next to china and india which are two huge polluters and they have a lot of glaciers melting and so he wanted to bring awareness to that and therefore they they planned this race um called the snowman race which is on the snowman uh trekking route which is a very remote trekking route in the Bhutan Himalayan mountains. And um, the, um, so they started organizing this race and they looked for help. And a friend of mine got hired as the race director and organizer. Um, and he brought me on as the elite athlete manager because it's an invite only, people had to send in the application and hand-selected field of 25 people from all over the world to go to that race. And so it was supposed to be in October last year, got canceled obviously due to COVID. And then this year we unfortunately had to postpone it again to next year 
because the ongoing in, in June, July, when we had to make the decision, that's when the Delta variant was obviously very bad in India and Bhutan is still not open because it's such a small remote country. Um, they're still not open for tourism because they can't afford getting COVID there. You know, even so they have like, I think they have some of the highest vaccination rates um, in the world, but they're still just afraid because they just don't have the infrastructure to handle a major outbreak there. Um, and so, yeah, so unfortunately we had to postpone it again to next year. So, but yeah, I'm really excited. It's like such a beautiful country, beautiful people. If you don't know anything, if you're interested in climate change and have an interest in Bhutan, uh, I would highly recommend to go on YouTube and search um, for Bhutan Prime Minister TED Talk. Um, the Prime Minister of Bhutan did his TED Talk, like, I don't know, it's like maybe like three, four, five years old, where he talks about climate change and Bhutan and how the country is run. And it's just, it's just great. I would highly recommend anyone um, to spend the, it's like a 15 minute TED talk to watch that. And then um, as far as like, you know, following me and my adventures, um, I'm mostly active on Instagram. I'm not doing much on Facebook anymore because there's just too much hatred on Facebook. I just, I can't go there and see everyone's political rants that I don't agree with. It's just too painful, <laughs> that, that platform. So I'm, I'm generally on Instagram posting photos, you know, my run and adventures and updates. So yeah, if you want to uh, look for me there, that would be like the best place. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.